0: Okay. Okay. So here we are in Latima. In case you're wondering this is sociology what is this 101 101. and if you're in the wrong room you can leave now second don't panic the crowd will thin out and you will have a seat here in a week okay so welcome to the new semester Indeed, the new year. This course is the first semester of a two-semester marathon. Well, we'll see if you say woo next May. (laughs) Yes, it is required of all social majors, and actually... The SOC 101 will in all likelihood be offered next semester as well as this semester. You are very lucky. (laughs) But you don't know why just yet. But one reason you are so very lucky is that you have five fantastic graduate student instructors, who obediently are sitting in the front row. <laughs> so why don't you stand up, Ben Shostakovsky. Yeah. <laughs> it yes, you wait. <laughs> Josh Seem. <laughs> Shelley Stewart. And Manuel Rosaldo. And Chris Herring is still in the air, coming from Europe. Uh, He will be with us, and uh, he will be teaching when sections begin on Tuesday. So you are liberated from today, and Monday, apparently, it's Labor Day, which we will say something about on Tuesday. Hmm. Do you know what Labor Day is about? Anybody here know what Labor Day is about? Yes. Uh so like during the anti-communist era, we didn't want to celebrate International Workers' Day May Day. So the US changed it to Labor Day. Ah, why did it change it to Labor Day? Huh? Aha <laughs> Well that is your task. Your task this weekend is to find out what is the real meaning of Labor Day in the United States of America, why it might be different from May Day in Europe, and it's very simple to find out in this day and age, because you do what? You Google! (laughs) And Wikipedia is the best encyclopedia in the world! But don't let me catch you. (laughs) And I wander around this room. Don't let me catch you using Facebook, Twitter. But you can try. You can try. You wait the humiliation if you are doing that. Yes, actually, this is an unfortunate room. Unfortunate for me, fortunate for you. There's no gangway down the middle. So the people in the middle probably are going to escape my eye. Okay, so my name, my name is Michael Buravoy. spelled B-U-R-A-W-O-Y. Now, I am going to make sure that you never forget how to spell my name. If you misspell my name from now on, you'll be in deep trouble. Listen to me, and repeat after me. B. B. You. you. Why? W. O. O. Y. Get it? B. You are a W. <laughs> o. Y. I would try and do it in Spanish, but it won't sound as good. <laughs> okay, that is my name. Shh. Ah, yes. Now, this class is exactly enrolled to 200 students. However, <laughs> however, some of you are not yet in a section. Hands up, those who are not in a section. Well, there should be, whoops, 22 of you. Perhaps there are a lot of shy people here. There are only two sections open. And they are the sections of dawn. Eight to nine on Wednesdays and Mondays, and eight to nine on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you are not enrolled in a section and you are therefore waitlisted and you want to get into this class, then those are the two sections that are open. And you must come and tell me, perhaps at the end of this class, perhaps fill out one of these forms and we will enroll you in one of those sections. If that's too early for you, then that's too bad. (laughs) And I'll promise you that the sections in the morning are the most lively breakfast sections you can possibly imagine. Try them. So if anybody wants to shift to one of those sections, they should also tell me. But anyway, the reality is those are the only two sections open, so if you're really not a morning person and you're desperate to get into this class, then gonna be tough. Um, I will let you figure that one out. All right, next, office hours. I have office hours Mondays and Thursdays, four to six. That's all on the syllabus. Has everybody got a syllabus? Anybody not got a syllabus? Okie dokie, okie dokie. There you go. Hand it back. The syllabus explains everything and more. Some of it will be unintelligible to you, but by next May—in fact, by December—it will be intelligible. Ha <laughs> ha! Yes, it better be. Ha <laughs> ha! Right. So, yes, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, th- Monday, Thursday, four to six. Barrows four five four. Those are my office hours. Books. Uh huh. This is a very cheap course. This is probably the cheapest course on campus. Cheap in terms of money, rich in terms of content. (laughs) There is one book, the Marx-Engels reader. This fellow Tucker who edits that made a lot of money on being an anti-communist. But still, it's probably the best ...of the readers on Marx and Engels... ...and that's the one we shall use... ...and that you shall buy. There are probably lots of second-hand copies. It's probably best that you actually buy a new one... ...so that you can underline and marginalize... ...and marginate the book very carefully. By the end of this semester... ...this book should be in tatters... ...and should be falling apart. That is the sign of having read the book... ...or the parts that we shall read very carefully. Yes, indeed. All right. And then there is a reader, which is available at Copy Central. Price. Oh, I haven't taught this course for a long time, and my voice is already going. That's terrible. Uh The price, $23.24 plus tax. Another bargain. And you must get hold of that as quickly as possible in order for you to do the assignment for... This weekend, namely to read Adam Smith, the pages that are indicated on the syllabus. And I will be indicating on the board what you have to do for next time. And in this case, it is, what is the meaning, forms, origin, conditions of development of the DL? What means? What is DL? Very good. Who are you? Hugo Las Garcia. Oh good. HG got DL right. Yes, very good. Division of labor. We'll see, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. All right, next. Requirements. Is this microphone, is that, is that disturbing you? Okay, requirements. There's a midterm, take home, and there's a final, take home, two weeks for each. They involve small essays, short essays, about 750 words, 1,000 words, in clumps of three, 40% for the first, 40% for the second, and 20% for what? For section participation. And you better turn up to those sections because you'll be in deep trouble if you don't. Because that's where you're going to learn everything from these people here. Yes. And they will give you 20% of your grade based on attendance participation, and the few small assignments that they will give you. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okey-dokey, okey-dokey, okey-dokey. Next. Ah, yes. A rather unfortunate thing I have to tell you is that in this course, because we live in a competitive, individualistic society, plagiarizing is forbidden is punished if we catch, and we always do, if we catch people plagiarizing, that is producing work that is not their own, they fail the course and are sent to the Dean for Student Conduct. And if you don't know what plagiarism is, look it up on Wikipedia. (laughs) It is producing work that is not your own. However, because we are sociologists, we understand that everything we produce is socially produced. That we learn about the world, not as individuals, but collectively. And so, we encourage you to collaborate with one another talk to one another, set up study groups with one another, but when it comes to writing those papers, you do it by yourself. It is your own work. So we encourage a lot of communication in this class, in sections and beyond, but we want you to write your own papers. Don't hire anybody from outside because It'll be obvious, because nobody outside this class has a clue what goes on in this class. Yes, all right. Enough said. Next. Look. You will be living, breathing, eating, drinking, and smoking. <laughs> social theory. ST. Smoking ST. For nine months, you will become addicts. You will not be able to release yourself from this addiction if you take this course properly. ST is the best drug in the world. You will be high well, most of the year, perhaps the day before you have to write those papers, you'll be a little low, but you will get high as you write them as you read Marx and Engels and Durkheim and particularly Max Weber he's going to give you the biggest high of all (laughs) there will be some side effects (laughs) But I will not tell you what they are. So, those are my introductory remarks. This is a course in which you are going to embed yourself in social theory. How many here are frightened of social theory? Ah, it's good. Only a few of you. I wish there were more. It's good to be frightened of the best drug in the world. And I want you ultimately to love social theory and to take social theory into the world beyond. This is going to be a course not on dead theory, but on living theory. We are going to make theory dance in front of your eyes. You are going to make theory dance. Ah, no more promises. Let me move on the organization of this course. Look, there's not a lot to read in this course. There's not, (coughs) not a lot to read. But what you read, you better know. You're going to be reading and 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 rereading, rereading, rereading until you develop an understanding of these theorists. So you'll be reading perhaps 10 to 30 pages, 10 to 30 pages a week, depending on how difficult writers are. So, this is ultimately, I know you're already majors, but still, this is a course on reading, writing, and thinking. Reading, writing, and thinking. And this is what this university should be imparting to you, and this course will be imparting to you in the many ways that we will unfold as the course continues, but we will also be smoking ST, that is we will be grasping theory, living inside theories and learning theory as if it were another language. And that learning of another language will be passive on the one side, absorbing ideas, but active. You will put theory into action. And that indeed will be one of the tasks you will be assigned during this semester and next. We will be comparing theories with one another, translating from one language to another, We will be seeing theories at work in society. We will draw from People magazine, as well as the Wall Street Journal, to see the ways that these public opinion makers have social theory embedded in their text as they describe, analyze the world. Yes. So I hope, next May, when you go away, that you will be able to read newspapers, listen to television, watch YouTube, read blogs in a whole new way, shaped by what you learn in this class. To facilitate this learning of a language, We will be giving you assignments, writing assignments. These will be short, but they will require careful reading, analytical thinking, and very clear writing. You will be applying ST imaginatively. They will be short essays in which every word will count. Every word will count. So that will be the exercise in writing, reading, and thinking. We will also be talking in this class and in sections and among yourselves. Okay, next. My teaching style. No comment. (laughs) Look, it's idiosyncratic. It's idiosyncratic. I'm here to keep you awake. Everybody teaches in their own way. I teach in my own way. I try as best I can, and one of the wonders of teaching here in Berkeley has always been the success with which I have had in getting you to participate in a classroom discussion. So, I expect you to be reading ahead so that you can indeed participate. And there are rules of participation You stick to the text, the text we're reading so that we can all share in this deliberation about the meaning of Smith and Marx and Engels, Lenin and Gramsci and Fanon, Durkheim, Weber, Foucault, MacKinnon, Patricio Collins and Simon de Beauvoir. So, those are the people we'll be dealing with, those are the people we'll be discussing in this class. As I say, you have to read ahead, read ahead. And you'll find the whole class much more enjoyable and interesting if you do. Yes, and you have to be ready to listen to others. And I've always found Berkeley students to be ready to listen to other Berkeley students. The tolerance and discipline of people who have peopled this class in the past has been quite awesome to use an American word. Yes. To facilitate discussion, I will have an outline of where I plan to go, plan to go, plan to go, and I, at the beginning of each class, will summarize where I think we've come from. <laughs> yes, sometimes these get long, but the GSIs here on the front row will tell me to get a move on whenever I'm going to slow. They are your intermediaries, indeed, (laughs) indeed, indeed. All right, next. You should try not to hesitate to ask me questions in the middle of class if you don't understand something. It takes courage, but there's no such thing as a stupid question. Sometimes the question may not be relevant. I may postpone it, and sometimes you may have me pinned to the board as you will next semester when I'm trying to defend Durkheim. But please try and pluck up courage and ask me questions when things are not clear. Not only ask questions, not only is there not a stupid question, but the bigger issue is this. There are no definite answers. There are no Definite answers to the questions that we will pose. The questions that we will pose to the text we will read do not have definitive answers. We will argue about possible, different interpretations. And sometimes you will come up with a much better interpretation than I. And I too will learn. Anybody here know what the third thesis on Feuerbach is? Marx's famous thesis on Feuerbach. The third thesis on Feuerbach, you get a gold medal. You get a BB, the first BB. Bloody brilliant. <laughs> I bet nobody knows what the third thesis on Feuerbach is. It says that the educator, too, has to be educated. The educator, too, has to be educated. I couldn't be teaching this course for so many years if I did not learn from you every time I teach this course. So, your answers are often far more interesting than mine, and you will find the GSIs have different answers to many of the questions than I do. And they will disagree with me. They better disagree with me. But they will also, first and foremost, clarify, clarify what I, the king, says. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Yes. Anyway, when there are these alternative readings, you will have to make up your mind as to what you think is the best, the most appropriate interpretation of the text. Haha. Next, look, I'm going to try to facilitate discussion by learning your names. As I get older, I guess I'm less proficient in learning your names. But it's a game we'll play together. We'll see if you can totally saturate me with names or whether I will learn 50, 60 names and no more new people will emerge. We'll see who wins this game. Yes. But anyway, I cannot learn more than two or three names. A lecture. So one way to sabotage this process is for six people to tell me their names. Anyway, I will do my best. Right. so, and then of course, I have an annoying habit, an annoying habit, well I probably have many annoying habits, (laughs) but one is very visible, and the one that's very visible is that I walk up and down, up and down, and some people claim that the more excited I am, the speedier I walk. And so perhaps you will discern my enthusiasm for the different theorists. However, I tell you now, I'm enthusiastic by all these theorists. I could not teach them if I were not. But it is true. I walk up and down. And those on the front row will get dizzier and dizzier. (laughs) However, 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 over time, over time, you'll get used to it. As you get used to so much at this beautiful campus. Yes. Yes. So... Yes, I can't stop walking. Next, I will be using B-Space. I think on a regular basis. And it seems, as you can see, I'm hooked up, that this class, if it works, will be audio recorded. However, what will be not audio recorded will be the beautiful pictures I'm going to put up on the board. And the pictures are, of course... The essence, as we all see, of living theory. Uh Well, they're not so beautiful. Uh, By the end of the year, you will be producing far more beautiful pictures than me. That's it. I become superfluous by May. Okay, look. As you may have figured out, I'm a funny old guy. And strange, not funny. Um, I've been teaching this course since well, when do you think I've been teaching this course? <laughs> How long do you think I've been teaching this course? 83? 83. 83? Where's 83? Is it 83, 1983? Why do you say 83 with such surety? Uh, I have a question mark, but I saw it on your website. You've been teaching it for a long time. For a long time. <laughs> 83. Any more, any more, any more, any more, any more, any more? Any more? 83, 83, 83? Eighty-two, 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 eighty-two. I'll tell you a secret since 1977. 1977 was the first time in this very room, in this very room, I taught this course. In 1977, there were about 70 or 80 of you. And it was one quarter long, and I am responsible in large measure for making it first two quarters and then two semesters. <laughs> I am. I am responsible for this punishment. <laughs> This course is the signal course, not just taught by myself, but by my other, but by other brilliant teachers in this department. It's the signal course that defines the sociology major at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell me, was anybody here living in 1977? Anybody here living in 1977? You get a very sort of privileged status in this class if you were living in 1977. Not a soul. Whoa, isn't that interesting? I hope some of your parents were living then. (laughs) Yes, not a soul. There's usually somebody who was here in 1977. Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes they come back, you know, from 1983 or... uh, so, I was in your class in 1983. I didn't finish it. I want to finish it now. Aha. Okay. 1977. Cast your imaginary minds back to 1977. What were the student fees in 1977? What were the student fees in 1977? Yes, at the back. Sorry? But how, what were the tuition and fees? Um, I'm just saying, I'm just saying look the classes, probably for books now. <laughs> ah, yes, well the books were the same. They're probably the price of the books... Now, like like... ...twice as much, possibly. I don't know how much Tucker was in those days. It was blue rather than red. That's all I remember. <laughs> but how much did you pay in tuition and fees? If you were a California resident, in nineteen seventy seven, sir. Well, not nothing. Seven hundred dollars a year. How much do you pay in student fees today? Fourteen. I reckon looking at the website, it's $13,000 a year. Something has happened (laughs) in the last 36 years. Something has happened. Yes. In those days, students were rebellious because they didn't have to spend so much time working. Yes, but they did work. They did work because, after all, fees and tuition is not everything. But anyway, that's one thing that has changed since 1977. <laughs> With all sorts of implications that sociologists have examined for who is here in this class and how you behave. <laughs> Let's move on. 1977, who was president of the United States of America? Hands up. I'm hiring something. Hands up. Yes. Yes. Very good, Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, as I recall, yes, Jimmy Carter, yes, yes, and who was governor of the state of California? Yes, it was Jerry Brown. so you see, some things don't change. <laughs> Jerry Brown himself. <laughs> yes, a recent graduate of this university. Jerry Brown, Jerry Brown, yes. Tell me, there was a famous, very famous singer who died in 1977. Any idea? I have a guess. Very famous. Hmm? No. What did... (laughs) 77. Elvis! I heard it! Oh, yes. Very good, Elvis. Elvis, Elvis. Elvis, Elvis himself. The ever reincarnated Elvis. Yes. Yes, indeed. What else can we say about 1977? Well, there was a blackout in New York which led to a sort of peak in the population a few months later. (laughs) Now tell me, tell me, tell me, who won the Super Bowl in 1977? (laughs) Who won the Super Bowl in 1977? Now there's no Super Bowl fanatics in this. That's fascinating in itself. The Super Bowl was won by the Oakland Raiders. Okay. And the World Series by the inimitable Yankees. Yes, yes, yes. And what was the top grossing money grossing film in nineteen seventy seven? Star Wars. Very good. That was asserted with such where who was Star Wars? Yes you said it with such... Why are so sure? Uh, my siblings grew up in the 70s. So. My siblings grew up in the 70s. Aha. Uh-huh. And so you heard about Star Wars in your prior life. Yes, they told you about it. Okay. Okay, that's 1977, an interesting time indeed. Yes. Well, the point is this. I've been teaching this a long time. In the old days, I used to teach it every year. Now I teach it probably every two years. I depend upon you. If you don't participate in this class, I die. And you don't want your teacher to die. (laughs) So I am going to get you to participate in all sorts of manner of ways. And I can see that you are already ready to do so. So let's see now. The next thing we have to do, we have done the organization of the course and the administration, and we are now moving on to what is social theory. What is social theory? Something you're terrified of, or some of you. But it's a drug. A drug. Yes. Yes. What is social theory? Well, tell me, tell me, what is social theory? What is social theory? Anybody got any idea what a theory is? Let's forget about social. What is a theory? An idea. Where's an idea? Yes, there's an idea there? You're an idea. All right, the rule in this, you have to hands up. I know it's much more funny You just yell it out, but... For the sake of democratic deliberation, we have to have hands up. Yes, where... I saw a hand here. Yes. Um, An idea about the way things work that hasn't been disproven yet? A way? Ooh, that's interesting. A way? An idea that describes the way things work that hasn't been disproven yet. That is very nice. Very nice. An idea... The way things work, way things work, things work, that has not been disproven yet. Aha. Uh-huh. Not been disproven. There's another thing about my teaching, by the way, you will get used to. It's not just that theory is a language, my writing is very special. That <laughs> you will learn to decipher it. An idea, the way things work, that... See, sometimes I cannot read it myself. (laughs) That has not been disproven yet. Yes. What is this idea? It is an answer to a specific question. What sort of question? It is a hypothesis, yes. But what is the word that would begin the question? Yes, sir. Um, I was thinking that it was a, like how people in society work. Well, we not yet got to social theory, but how something works. So it's a how question. How does something take place? How does this class unfold? How do we, let's take an example, how an eclipse occurs. But there is not, you can say it's a how, it's a description, but there's another word that perhaps better gets at the specificity of explanation. You have a chance to correct your previous answer. What's your name? Dominic. Dominique. Uh, why? Why? That is a a word I prefer to use. Why may imply how, but why is the prior question. Why, why, why does something happen? We are interested in therefore why questions, and why questions are sometimes called explanations. Yes. But there are specific type of explanation, which what is your name wherever you are? Yes. Katie. You that's a specific type of explanation, you said. The way things work that has not been disproven. Explanations that can be subject to empirical examination. Hmm. Subject to empirical examination. Yes. Let's take a favorite example of mine, the eclipse. What happens when there is an eclipse? Ah, you're already... Yes, you're already giving me the explanation. But what do we see when there is an eclipse? You see, darkness, darkness. Suddenly the world becomes dark. All of a sudden. Now, that is a phenomenon that requires an explanation because it's something that surprises us and we therefore need to explain it. Now, what are the possible explanations of an eclipse? They're lining up. They're lining up. Who's lining up? The sun and the moon. What exactly is happening? From where we are, they're up. Well, who's lining up with what? <laughs> uh, we are here. The sun is here. And then what happens? The moon. the moon comes in the way. And poof. <laughs> it gets dark. That is one explanation. It is due to the movement of earth Sun and Moon. Ha ha. We've got an eclipse. But there are other explanations for eclipses, no? What other explanations for eclipses might there be? Yes. The gods are angry. The gods are angry. Indeed. The gods are angry. And that... Sounds to me like a much more plausible explanation. (laughs) Gods are angry. Yes. What is the difference between these two explanations? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Proven or disproven? Both. Ah, hmm, aha and one can't right. I, one can and one can't is that what you're saying? Which one? The option A Option 1 yes <laughs> yes they're just subject to a person's interpretation so they're just subject to a person's interpretation and you know whoo, doesn't matter you know it's what we like. It's like colors we choose, red or blue, you know, whether it's the gods are angry or the movement of, just two different interpretations. Mm. Well, some people take this position. It's not the position I will take in this class. The position I will take in this class is what you said you are? Emily. Emily. Okay, Emily, Emily, Emily. I'm trying to remember your name. She's already flipped out of my head. Katie with a C, okay, Katie with a C, that's a hard one, Katie with a C. I'll remember it that way, Katie with a C, okay, Emily, yes, Emily, yes, I think that this first one developed out of theories, of the universe of the planetary system associated by names like Kepler and Copernicus, and what this theory here implies is that you can do what? You can anticipate. You can predict when the next eclipse will be. And therefore you can be wrong. Indeed. So this is a theory that is falsifiable. It can be proven, as Emily said, falsifiable can be proven wrong. Whereas this theory, tell me about this theory, Emily. The gods are angry. We We can't even see the gods. We don't know the gods. We are just imputing that they are angry and we have no way of what? Disproving it. There's no way of disproving it is a theological explanation if you will that is not falsifiable so in this course in this course I am going to make the provocative claim hold on God's not falsifiable I'm going to make the claim that sociological theories social theories are scientific theories in as much as they can be falsifiable in as much as they make predictions that can then be proven wrong and they usually are wrong but that doesn't mean they're not scientific they're just false science but but it is this idea of falsifiability that is important when explaining explaining things scientifically. Okay, so that's my first point. What is theory? Theory is all about explanations, answering the question, why something happens. There are two types of explanations, a scientific one, which is potentially falsifiable, and there are alternative theories that are not falsifiable, theological, dogmatic, interpretive, whatever you want to call it, yeah. Now, the gentleman over there in red said, well you know, know, these theories are all interpretations and that's something you should not forget. We'll see if you think that the social theories that we will develop in this class to you are scientific or are they just interpretations just theological interpretations of the world and hold judgment I'm going to try and demonstrate that they are scientific but you may disagree with me come May we'll have this discussion how scientific can sociology be? how scientific can social theory be? That is a very interesting, fascinating question. (laughs) Ha ha. Yes, indeed, indeed. But we will start off with the assumption that we can develop social theories, that is, theories about the social, about society, that can be falsifiable. All right. So, when we think of Social theory, we're interested in explanations of social phenomena. What sort of phenomena might you want to explain? What sort of phenomena? Hands up. Yes? Race. What does race mean? Explain. Race. I would say, what about racial discrimination called racism? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. Right. But of course you're right. To explain race, race can't be no. How do we have a phenomenon called race? It's based. Why is it that we distinguish between those who are black and those who are white? Where does it come from? Huh? Culture. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just culture. It's culture. culture. Culture and bullshit. Well, they are very closely allied. <laughs> Yes, right, it comes from culture. Culture, we are trained and socialized to distinguish between black and white. But why not big noses and small noses? Why not people with glasses and without glasses? Those with long hair and short hair? Huh? 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 <laughs> yeah, why race? Why race? Interesting question. That we need lots of theory. And a lot of social theory about that. Yes, I saw a hand up. No, it's gone down. Yes. Gender. Gender. Another phenomenon. On the one hand, gender discrimination. On the other hand, the very existence of men and women. Where on earth does it come from? What a weird distinction to make. Hmm. Maybe not. We find it very normal. So much so, that most people don't even raise the question. Gender. You must have taken quite a few sociology classes to even ask that question. Your parents will not ask that question. They assume. They don't even think about problematizing, making problematic, questioning why there should be a distinction between men and women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We sociologists are very unnerving people because we ask questions that nobody wants us to ask. Hmm. Yes, that's why we have problems delivering our ideas to the world people don't like the questions we ask but good that's another problem we have a whole theory we have courses on race we have courses on gender whole courses developing explanations for the existence of these classifications yes indeed alright what else might you want to explain as sociologists yes Class differences. Wow, you're into really class, race, and gender. You've really taken a good social one here. Yes, class differences. Why is this world so unequal? And why is it becoming ever more unequal? This is so strange. And so unjust. As we will discover... Most of sociology thinks that inequality taken too far is actually detrimental to all. Ha ha, to all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed, all right. What else might one explain? Yes. Educational inequalities. Sorry? Educational inequalities. Educational inequalities. You're really into inequalities. <laughs> yes, education. How is it that... Different people have different access to education and with different outcomes. Yes. And with what consequences? Yes. Systems of government. Aha. Yes. Systems of government. Systems of government. Dictatorships and democracies. Yes. and Different types of democracies. Yes. Yes. Very good at the front there. How certain people get power, and back on sort of inequality, so the inequality of power. How certain people get power and then do what? Keep power. Whoa. Yes, interesting. Yes, uh huh. Religion. What do you mean, religion? Ah, why some people choose to believe in Islam, others are Roman Catholics, what is it about life, and what is the differences between religions, and perhaps how religions have historically emerged in different historical contexts. Yes, indeed, yes. Katie with a C. How we organize our families and communities. How we organize our families and our communities. Families are a very interesting topic of examination because they are so incredibly diverse. Sociology has almost lost track of what a family is anymore. Yes, indeed. Um, cultural, and cultural, capital. cultural and social capital. You know, that's interesting. Usually, cultural and social capital. What is cultural and social capital? Ah, you see, now we've got to distinguish between what is cause and what is consequence. See, when one invokes the idea of culture as a resource, as capital as a resource, one is often trying to explain something, perhaps explain some inequality, and how, in this case, you were suggesting how those who are wealthy are able to actually appropriate culture for their own ends. yes. Yes, so culture is then used as an explanation rather than something to be explained. Yes, we have to distinguish between what is explained and what is doing the explaining. Yes. Along those lines, um, the beautiful and like what's you to be. Ah, interesting. You're real, this, is your, this is fascinating. You're fascinating people. <laughs> What, what course did you take to, 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 to come up with this idea? Um, I think it's more like the books that read. Such as? Um, I don't know. Like, a lot of like, evolutionary psychology. Uh-huh. Aha. Like evolutionary psychology. Hmm. Uh-huh. That's very subversive in this class. Okay, very good. Yes, all right. Well, beauty, yes. What do we regard as beauty? This is back to the idea of classification. What? How do we classify things? This is a big central issue in social theory, in sociology. All right, that's enough. I wouldn't have suggested any of those things. I'd have talked about social movements. It's fascinating that none of you suggested we should study social movements. Fascinating. You know, we just had three years of extraordinary social movements that continue to spread across the world. We've had Arab uprisings. We've had Occupy movements. We've had the Indignados. We've had all sorts of struggles against land dispossession. The world is up in arms, except here in Berkeley, where we're all glued to our seats. Yes. Yes. Berkeley used to be the hotbed of ferment. But that has spread to other places. That is a fascinating sociological question. What is happening to you? Yes. (laughs) All right. We have a sense of what social theory is about, explaining social phenomenon. There are three levels of theory, I argue. The first level is the level that I call tacit. We all have theories of the world. All of us, all the time, cannot operate without having a theory of the world, of how it works. Now you are yawning right there in front of me on the first day of classes. God, excuse me, who knows what you will be doing next week or the week after. But, but, even you have a theory of the world and you yawned Because you knew there's still half an hour to go. And that is a theory of the world. You believe that I'm going to stand here and talk to you in this strange fashion for the next half hour. You are making a prediction and that makes you yawn. Yes. You all assume that I'll come here next Tuesday. Because you have a theory of how this university works. You came here, it's the most incredibly extraordinary phenomenon that you all arrived here at 2.10 to listen to me. This is an extraordinary feat. How could it possibly happen? You would only ask that question if I didn't turn up. And if I don't turn up next Tuesday, you think, well, what happened to that strange guy? Did I dream of that class last Thursday? (laughs) Yes. So we have tacit theories that we take for granted that only become apparent when somehow something happens that is unexpected, unexpected, unexpected. That is tacit theory. But then what sociology deals mostly with in most of your courses, whether it's courses on the family, on gender, on race, courses on political sociology or cultural sociology, deals with... Th- theories of the middle range. Theories about specific phenomenon as we were talking about just a few minutes ago. Middle range theory. Most sociology in most courses articulates and analyzes and criticizes tacit theory and makes, turns it into middle range theory about phenomenon of importance. But in this course we will be moving to a third level. The theory of grand. The level of grand theory. Grand theory. Grand theory. The grand theory will imply all sorts of tacit theory and middle range theory, but it moves it to a greater level of generality and abstraction. What grand theory involves is the analysis of the broad trajectories of society. Grand theory usually has a theory of history, and we'll try to understand what that means already beginning next week. That grand theory is concerned with how society came to be what it is and what its future might hold. Grand theory is more fundamental theory in the sense that it is grounded on a set of assumptions about what human beings are and what is the nature of the world that human beings interact with. Grand theory will look at the dynamics of society and its internal contradictions. We will specify more clearly at the beginning of next semester what grand theory is once we have dealt with a few this semester. But grand theory is one that really attempts to think much more broadly about the past and the future and the way they're linked to the present. Thinks more broadly and more carefully about the philosophical assumptions of our thinking, the nature of human beings and the nature of the social world. And grand theory will be also very self-conscious about how we should study the world, the methodologies we should use. So we have these three levels. Tacit theory, we all are theorists. But we only come to know it when our expectations are violated. Middle-range theory, which is the self-conscious development of the theories that you learn in most of your courses. And then grand theory, which in a sense incorporates so much of what you learn in those courses but moves it to a much greater level of generality. So what we're going to do in this course is examine a series of grand theories. And I believe in so doing you will actually learn much more from your other sociology courses. But in examining these grand theories we will look at their assumptions. Their assumptions. We will see what questions they ask. What questions they ask. We will see what possible answers they offer. Possible answers they offer. And finally, we will look to see what models, what metaphors they use to explain the trajectory of society. Whether they will use, for example, the human body. Society is like the human body. And begins like a fetus, and then grows these different parts, gets differentiated. An organic model of society, or a mechanical model of society. Yes, we will have different models, different metaphors. So that's our grand theory that we will, in fact, examine here for the next nine months with a little interlude in Christmas, New Year, where you'll be reading the three volumes of Capitao. Yes, what you will discover in this course is that grand theories offer a window, a window on the world, a window on the world. And you have a series of windows. You will be in this castle and looking out of different windows and seeing the world in different ways much as the interpretive gentleman on my right has now taken his hat off, um, said a few moments ago. Now, okay, but there is another way, and now we are back. We're on for cognitive map. We are now going to talk about theory as a map, a map, a geographical map. Think of maps, think of maps, think of maps. So what are maps? What are maps? What is a geographical map? What is a geographical map of the world? It is a picture Model. Yeah. Visual representation. Oh, I love it. Visual representation. Very good. A visual representation. Yes. Orientation. An orientation. Yes. Generalized useful. A generalized. Generalized. Useful. Generali- yep. You three use were very good. You know, in those wonderful answers you've just given me you have actually elaborated what i'm going to do in the next 5 minutes the different significances of a map that can also be applied to theory but the first where we begin is the idea of a map as a visual if you will a visual representation a visual representation but when we make a map of the world what are we doing we're turning a spheroid into a two dimensional. Now, there are different projections, but we are engaging in a what? First and foremost, a visual representation, which is a simplification. Yes, simplification. The visual representation becomes a simplification. And social theories, though they may appear complex to you, are actually simplifications of the social world. Simplifications. The world is complex, and therefore we have to simplify. Ha ha! But there are simplifications and simplifications. So, if we think of Maps of the world, two-dimensional maps of the world. Some of those maps have the United States at the centre. <laughs> Some of those maps have Africa at the centre. Some of those maps have Greenland at the centre. Have you seen one of those maps? Mm-hmm. No. But we have actually, we have actually, we have actually, different perspectives, and different social theories will have different perspectives. We'll have different perspectives. We'll have different orientations. We'll ask different questions. And that brings me to the third point, that different maps serve different purposes. A road map tells me how to get from Oakland to Berkeley. A climatic map tells me what is likely to be the weather tomorrow. There are different purposes, so social theories also have different purposes, have different goals. And then maps actually have to be, you have to learn how to use many maps. You have to learn, they're like a language. And that is the same with social theory. That is the same with social theory. thats the same with social theory Theories are like languages that you will have to learn with great care to learn the new vocabulary and the way that words fit together to form grammatical structures. The way that Marx describes the world is a language very different from the way, as you will see, Durkheim describes the world. Yes, indeed. And then, as somebody else said, that maps help you to make inferences about the world predictions about the world and so theories also will help you make inferences and predictions not always correct but help you to make predictions about the world yes and then there's one other thing about maps you know you make a map and that map can then do what it can then lead people to what You've got a hand there. Yes. Oh, I was think about, Sorry? Perversions of the map. What does that mean? The floors. The the ah, we'll come back to that in a second. One second. One second. Ah, the floors in the map. Just one second. Ah, but there is one other thing about maps. If you have a map and you follow the map, then you might discover something new. Treasure. Treasure. <laughs> and the treasure may then discovering of gold in Latin America may then transform the world and therefore transform the map maps may lead to changes that change maps that's what we call the process of reactivity and that also applies to theory social theory once grasped may lead people to transform the world that then leads to the necessary transformation of the theory itself And as we shall see this semester, when we talk about Marxism, is we will see how the world gets transformed in part by Marxism that then leads to the necessity of changing the theory itself. Reactivity, yes. And finally, which the gentleman over there anticipated, we have to ask the question, how to evaluate maps? How to evaluate theories? How would you evaluate a map? What are the criteria that distinguish a good from a bad map? Yes. If, uh, the less of the the map is what do you mean by perversion? Give me an example.:, but then uh, the positioning of the are all going to be more positioning more So accuracy. Accuracy is one criteria, accuracy is one criteria map, accuracy should be one criteria of theory. Accuracy. What else? What else? What else? What other ways of evaluating maps are there? Yes? Organized in a systematic way. Perhaps clarity. Clarity. We like maps that are clarity, that are clear. The contradictions are clear, but clarity in theory is also important. Yes? They have to have some, degree of detail. some degree of detail. Very good. It's linked to accuracy. Detail. What else? Theories have to be detailed. Yes. There might be islands that we don't know about: have to be Pertinent. They have to be relevant. Perhaps maps have to be relevant to the purpose for which they are deployed. So theories too have to be can be assessed by their relevance to the project in hand. Relevance. Anything else? Yes. Yes. Drawing inferences and checking them empirically. Drawing inferences and checking them empirically is to do with accuracy. That's how you actually establish its accuracy. By looking at things empirically. Yes. This is sort of relevance, but it needs to have a theme or a common grouping. Coherence. That's, maps have to be coherent? Yes. Theories have to be coherent. Yes. Coherence. Anybody want to say yes? Katie with a C. I'm going to remember that. Um, to be made available for other people to evaluate and add their input or like peer review? Ah. So, so collective, collective. Hmm? Ah, oh, accessibility. Oh, I like that one. Accessibility. Well, can I do that? Accessibility. Accessibility. Yes, yes, yes. Accessibility. You're doing very well. Theories have to be accessible in principle. Well, we'll see how accessible the theories that we read these next two semesters are. Yes. They're a drug. They're a drug. They're a drug. Yes. All right, yes, very good. There are probably other criteria, but you see, you can see there are multiple criteria for what is a good theory or what is a good map accuracy, clarity, detail, relevance, coherence, accessibility. Excellent. You deserve a collective BB for that. Very good. Collective BBs are very rare. That means that you have been collaborating with one another even though you didn't know it. Yes, all right. So, this is the point I'm trying to make here, is that perhaps we can think of social theory as a cognitive map which has the following criteria and the following features. Simplification, it has different perspectives. You can't even spell perspectives properly. They have distinctive purposes. Languages, we have to learn. They are used to make inferences and predictions and they can actually lead to their own transformation. Good. Now. Ha. Yes. We got 7 minutes. The 7 most important minutes of any class are always the last 7 minutes. What's your name? Kali. 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 K A L I. Kali. Kali. Ali. <laughs> you know, I'm getting very deaf. Oh, but that's good, because everybody has have to, have to make themselves very clear. Ah, uh, Ali, okie dokie. All right, yes. The last seven minutes. All right. So, seven minutes. This is a very dysfunctional clock. You can see it and I can't. All right. Now, look. We now move on to the history of social theory. Concentrate for five minutes. The history of social theory. We have talked about different levels of theory. We talked about theories of cognitive map. We now want to do history of social because that is what we're going to do in this course: history of social theory, uh-huh. because we're going to look at a range, a series of theorists. How do you do this? How does one do this? How does one do this? Yeah. One way is to do it as and intellectual history to situate social theories these grand theories in their historical context and here we have a theorist Durkheim and he produces a theory of the division of labour uh-huh. and then we have another character Weber who produces a different theory of the division of labor. The theory, the the way to the intellectual history approach is to situate Durkheim or Weber in their historical context, in their individual biographical context, in their collective context, arguing with other theorists and producing their particular theory. To do this, you have to be more than brilliant, more than a genius. You have to know a lot of history, but you have to have a theory of the way history affects individuals' creativity. And you have to also know the theories intimately that you're trying to situate historically. I believe that's too difficult for me to do and for me to teach. Particularly in the course as short as one year. This historical approach, this intellectual history, if it is done seriously, requires a theory of knowledge before we can even begin to actually address the theorists concerned. A theory of how knowledge is produced in particular historical contexts. And therefore, I take what I call the historical tradition approach. Or the theoretical tradition approach. This is intellectual history approach. Intellectual, and this is historical... Intellectual history, this is sorry, theoretical tradition. And here, what we do, we focus much more on the theories themselves. Much more on the theories themselves. We try and construct the theories from first principles through our reading. And we compare the theories with one another. And one way to compare them is to see how one theory leads to another theory through its reconstruction. Basically, this is one way of thinking about a theoretical tradition in which there's a core theory that over time gets elaborated, reconstructed. But it is always based on this core theory. So we have T0, T1, T2, T3. The alternative way to think about it is theories lead to one another in this sort of more mechanical fashion. That they are related to one another, not in any systemic way, but in terms of a dialogue. This semester, we are going to be dealing with something like this. Theory of Marxism, about which I'll say something more next time. And this next semester, we're going to deal with the sociological tradition in which we will compare theorists with one another but they don't develop a tradition of their own but they are having a discussion, and argument with one another. Now, we can, only, we can only undertake this comparison of theories, this interrogation of the essential properties of theories, comparing them with one another if we have something, some question that some issue that they all share. We need a foundation for our comparison. We need a foundation for our comparison. We need some theme around which we can make the comparison. And there is a fellow called Robert Nisbet, who was a very famous sociologist in this department, who said that the themes in sociology are community, authority, the sacred... Alienation and status. Well I'm telling you, they're all important concepts, but the concept that we'll deal with in this course, around which we will compare all these theorists, and an issue which all these theorists are very concerned about is the Division of Labour. Division of labour. Division of labour. What is the division of labor? You cannot go. Don't start packing up before I finish. Otherwise you'll be publicly humiliated. What is the division of labor? You, sir. In the great. Division of labor is? is the division of labor. Very good. Now that's a good beginning. What is another synonym for the division of labor? Come on. Yes. Think, 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 think. Otherwise you'll be imprisoned here division of labor what's your name again dominic, dominic. And that is a specific form of the division of labor what does it mean in general in general at the back stratification, stratification it could mean that yes this means certain, people do certain, jobs. certain people do certain jobs and there's a name for this specialization this? yes Different people doing different things. And amazingly, this concept, division of labor, different people doing different things, is at the core of social theory. And what we're going to do through this course is examine what each theorist means by the division of labor. What they think the origins of the division of labor is. What are the forms of division of labor? And what are the conditions of existence of the division of labor? And what are the consequences of the division of labor? And what are the future of the division of labor? And this weekend you are going to read Adam Smith, perhaps the greatest theorist that ever lived. And he writes so clearly, so beautifully, even though he wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. It is still today cited as a wonderful text. And you will see why when you read it this weekend. You will see why because you're going to examine that text to see what he means by the division of labor. What the origins of division of labour is and the different forms of the division of labour. And so we meet on Tuesday. Now, have a good Labor Day weekend, but don't forget to figure out what it's all about. Shoo.